This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. The scripture reading for today is found in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, and can be found on page 886 in your Black Pew Bible. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's really great to see everyone, and we're really glad that you're all here. This morning, uh, this morning's sermon, this morning's sermon is about God, the Son incarnate. It's about how Jesus became flesh, about how Jesus was fully man. Uh, but before I get into the, the meat of the sermon, I wanted to share something with the congregation. And as I prepared for today, I found myself overwhelmed and gripped with just a burden for our church. We had Ash Wednesday this last week, and that service was powerful. I'm seeing, I'm seeing the Holy Spirit work in our body, and I'm thrilled and amazed. And to be honest with all of you, on Friday, I was so caught up in God's presence and goodness to us, to us in particular, that I was distracted from concentrating on writing this sermon. It was hard for me to concentrate and pay attention because I'm so excited for what God's doing right here. I don't have to say, I don't have any other way to say it than God's at work here, here. The spirit of the living God is saving lives right here. He's transforming marriages right here. God's people are walking out of darkness and into the light right here. And people who once didn't have a people are being knit together into a spiritual family right here. There's no place I'd rather be than counted as a part of this family, this church, this congregation with you and all the way for you, fighting this fight, which is the fight of faith that we do together, laboring together, laboring with everything that we have to love each other well, to serve one another and see love, see the love of God control us and bless each other. So I wanted to say that uh, this morning, even before we enter into uh, the sermon, I wanted to make that known. 
It was important. It was important in all my heart. So would you bow your heads now? I'm going to pray for us, and then we will get rolling. Jesus, there is not a reason to be here that's good enough if you aren't fully God and fully man. If you aren't who you say you are, there's no other reason for us to sacrifice, for us to give our lives away, for us to love people. There's no reason to listen. There's no reason to uh, walk through the pain of this life together, carrying one another's burdens if you aren't who you say you are. So all I'm asking today is that, Holy Spirit, you would help us see Jesus. Would you open our eyes? Would you expand our capacity to be in awe of who you are? Would you expand our capacity to love you to obey you, to listen to you, to submit to you. Would you convict us all over the place? Would you weed out sin, things that distract us from who you are, things that compete for your affection? Would you weed our hearts of lesser loves that pull, pull us away from you? Would you help us understand your humanity in a way that makes us glorify you as we look at you in wonder? The Spirit of God, convict us, control us, compel us, awaken us, strengthen our faith. Give us the grace to listen to you this morning, I ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey. The effort, the effort to understand and grasp that humanity and divinity exist at the same time in one person has been the subject matter for many historical heresies inside the church. And when we try to fit that concept into our heads, naturally, we have trouble doing it. I myself have been in, in many moments in the last two weeks where my mind hurt trying, trying to comprehend this. As I meditated on Christ's divinity and his humanity and tried to comprehend it, I've suffered from what I'm calling Trinitarian brain scramble. It's been, it's been uh, constant over the last two weeks. And as I tried to prepare for this sermon, many times I caught myself squinting and just saying, Whoa, what in the world? In the beginning, God created everything, everything. And it was the triune God that did it. It was the triune God that created everything. And I can't stress this too much. That same triune God is right here, right now, creating things bringing people from death 
to life, giving people spiritual sight where they were blind, healing people, changing people. He's right here, right now, working, working. Listen to this summary statement about how the the Trinity creates. The external acts of the triune God are indeed common to all three persons, but that does not mean that each person acts in the same way. The triune God creates, but the Father creates as Father, and the Son creates as Son, and the Spirit as Spirit. Each works in his own proper way, and I'm saying right here, right now, the Spirit of God is here changing lives. Last week we talked about Jesus Christ being fully God, and this week we're going to talk about him being fully man, what Colossians calls his flesh, his humanity, his human will, his human mind, his human brain and emotions and skin and body. The humanity of Christ is the subject of today's sermon because for the reality of redemption and reconciliation to exist, you have to have both his humanity and his divinity. But let me reiterate that it isn't enough to merely intellectually understand that Jesus was fully man. And I'm not up here trying to judge for anybody out there whether or not they're in a situation where they're merely trying to comprehend his humanity. What I mean is that it isn't enough for me as a pastor, for you as a person in our church, to merely intellectually comprehend his humanity. I want us to adore him for it. I want you to adore God the Son for becoming a man, for becoming incarnate. I want you to adore him for doing that because of what it means. Get this, what it means for the entire universe, not just our lives. The vision of Redeemer Fellowship is simple. We long to see Jesus Christ change everything, everything everything. Change how you spend your money. Change how you spend your time. Change how you understand the world. Change how you understand yourself. Change how you understand your own humanity. And the humanity of Jesus will help you see that change happen in your life. If you can adore him, if you can love him for it, if you're blown away by it. Loving Jesus Loving Jesus makes human beings different. It changes you. Loving Christ changes you. You can't love Jesus in the way that the Bible defines love and not be changed. And today, we'll labor to love him for his humanity and what that means for us. So I want to talk about three aspects of the incarnation, three aspects of God's or Jesus's manness. Okay, I'm going to talk about the poverty of Jesus. I'm going to talk about the temptation of Jesus. And then lastly, I'm going to talk about the pain of Jesus. First, his poverty. Second Corinthians 8 9 says it this way For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Might become rich. We, in the West, have a historically rare relationship to poverty in general. 
There's a lot of wealth in this country, and most of us are more wealthy than most of the world. And I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for the blessings of God. I'm grateful for the comforts that God has provided for our church and for the families in this church. It's an incredible kindness from the hand of God. Anything in our lives that he gives us is an incredible kindness. And Jesus left. Jesus left all the wealth of heaven to become a human being. That's astounding. That is astounding. Psalm 50 says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, the living God says, the living God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I wouldn't tell you because the world and all of its fullness is already mine. Isaiah 40 says, behold your God, behold the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains on scales, the word says. It says, who has made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like they are dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offerings. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And God the Son left that scene. He left all that wealth. He walked away. First Chronicles 29, 11 says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. God, the son existed here. He existed here and he set it all down set it all down to come and become flesh and blood and walk in the poverty of a peasant. He didn't come as a rich man. He didn't come as a king. He didn't come as a ruler. And he didn't come as a war hero, even though other parts of the scriptures tell us that's exactly what he is. He's all of those things. He is the king. He walked away from all his heavenly divine wealth when he came as a baby in his mother's womb. It is mind-boggling. And that kind of humility has a strange effect on human beings. The holiness of this kind of humility is staggering, but it's also offensive. It's also offensive. Christ's humility offends us. It offends our pride. It offends our arrogance. But we don't have to be offended. We can learn from him instead. 
We can learn from Christ instead. Application is let the humanity of Jesus in his poverty help you. Let the humanity of Jesus in his poverty help you loosen your grip on your own wealth. We all have something that we treasure, something that we like or enjoy or love more than anything else. I don't know if it's a pair of shoes for you. I don't know if it's your car or your home. I don't know what the thing is in your life. I don't know if it is your bank statement. I don't know what the marker of wealth is in your life that you love the most, but whatever it is, let the humility displayed in the humanity of Christ help you loosen your grip. Let it this morning, let it help your heart loosen its kind of grasping or clutching. It is good for us. It is good for us to have a loose grip on the wealth in our lives. And if you're sitting here thinking that this sermon doesn't apply to you because I'm talking about wealth, you're wrong. You're wrong. Let me gently and compassionately help us understand that we're wrong if that's what we think. Now, it may be the case that you have a a holy or godly or healthy relationship with the wealth in your life. And what I mean by that is that you might have a clean, grateful heart that loves being generous and your heart might not be tangled up in your wealth in, um, in a sticky, sinful kind of way. And if that's the case, we should thank God for that because we all want to have holy, clean relationships with money and wealth. But if you're in this room and you think that so far the sermon isn't for you because you're not wealthy, then you're mistaken. We have more wealth in our pocket than the generations of Christians that have come before us could have imagined in our, smart, in our smartphones alone. So don't rob yourself of the freedom that this application offers you. Jesus let go of his wealth to become poor so that you could become rich. Rich. And it's the kind of rich that no one can ever take away. It's the kind of rich that no circumstances can change. This is the kind of rich that's above and beyond and deeper than financial resources. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, he who has God and everything has no more than he who has God only. One way to help your heart loosen its grip on your wealth is to give it away. Our God is a giver. He just gives and gives and gives and gives. That's, that's the model that we have. He, he gives himself away constantly. He gives us everything. And he gives everyone everything, even in his own son that he gave to the world. Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. He wasn't kidding. He wasn't messing with us. If you want to have a free heart, then let go and give. Give yourself away. Give your stuff away. Give away your money. It'll help you understand what it means to truly be rich. Rich the way, rich the way Jesus came to make us 
rich. He left everything to become poor, that by becoming poor, you and me would get to be richer than our wildest dreams in Christ. We have a saying in our home. We have a saying in our home. I like to remind us in my house that we're filthy rich because of Jesus. We are filthy rich even if we lose everything. 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 Because we have everything already. Already. So marvel at the poverty of Jesus. Next, Jesus' humanity is displayed for us in him being tempted. Hebrews says it this way, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We don't have a mediator who can't understand. We don't have a mediator who's unable to relate to us. We don't have a high priest who hasn't gone through what we've gone through. That's profound, and we have an opportunity with that truth to let it be a crushing blow to our own tendency to feel uniquely distressed. There's a human draw towards a kind of self-focused, self-pity. There's something shiny and alluring about being hurt or experiencing suffering in a way that we think that nobody else has. Sin is sneaky and the devil's a liar and he wants you to believe that nobody else has had to deal with what you're dealing with. But this verse obliterates grounds for self-pity. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted in every way. Jesus knows what it feels like to be weak in every way. Jesus knows what it feels like to be in your shoes, to be in your shoes. There's a proclivity inside the sinful heart to believe that whatever someone else is going through, it can't be as bad as what we're going through. At at times we cave under temptation and then we get, and then we get a second temptation to comfort ourselves by making some sort of excuse about it. Because we're uncomfortable acknowledging that that's what we're doing, but we make excuses. And I'm here this morning to encourage us by saying the gospel of Jesus is better than trying to sweep something under the rug. The gospel of Jesus is better than rationalizing or justifying our sin. If you find yourself caving into temptation and committing sin, The gospel's better than going to someone who's just going to say, it's okay, I sin too. It's okay, don't talk about it, it makes me feel weird. The sympathy that Jesus offers is not that kind of sympathy. We feel a kind of emotional pressure to let our accountability partners off the hook because it's tense or we get uncomfortable in the moment being around someone who's talking about the sin in their life, but we don't have to do that because the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ offers 
something way more powerful than that kind of sympathy that helps us brush something under the rug. The gospel invites us to look straight in the face of our sin and then own it, own all of it, excuses and all, so that you can be free, completely free. Don't sweep it under the rug. Confess it straight up. Face it. Look it in the eye so that you can be completely free from it. You can be more free than the cheap counterfeit freedom that comes from making excuses. The freedom that making excuses gives us is just phony and fleeting, but the freedom of the gospel lets us live in the light. And when I say live in the light, I mean live all the way in the light. If you want to be free, if you want to be really free, then dump out all of your sin right here, right now, out in the open at the feet of Jesus. You don't have to soften any blow. Don't sand off the rough edges. You don't have to. Don't deceive yourself. Don't make excuses. Confess everything. Repent all the way to the bottom and then leave it here. Leave it at the foot of the cross and live a life like a person who is forgiven, whose shoulders don't have any burdens on them. The freedom that we ache for won't come from minimizing our sin. It won't come from cheap comfort of telling ourselves that everyone's, everyone's hiding something or everyone's a sinner. Today, the application of understanding that Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted is for us to refuse to settle for anything less than total freedom in the forgiveness that Christ offers when we cave and are overcome by temptation and sin. Because Jesus suffered more temptation than we ever will. Which person, which person understands temptation better? The person who gives in and buckles under the weight of temptation or the person that resists? And the answer is simple. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted just like us, and he knows our temptation even better than we do because he was tempted and never caved. Application is ask him for help. Ask Jesus for help to stand against the temptation in your life. Ask him for the grace to stand firm. And when you fall, when temptation gets the best of you, confess and repent and keep going like a person who is forgiven all the way to the bottom, not like a person who's trying to build a case. Finally, the last aspect of Jesus's humanity that I want to talk about is that Jesus endured pain, pain. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche hated Christianity for this reason, among others. He hated the weakness and the suffering of Jesus. But this is the glory of the humanity of Christ that he suffered. He didn't just leave all of his wealth, but then he was beaten and bruised and suffered under the hands of his own creation. And I want to highlight this in two regards. One, that he suffered physical pain and he suffered emotional, psychological anguish. First, physical pain. Let me highlight just a couple things we don't normally think about. Jesus got 
hungry. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He had to walk. Jesus had a body and he lived an earthy and gritty life. He got cricks in his neck when he slept on his pillow the wrong way. He stubbed his toe. He learned things. If you want something that will really hurt your brain, the God of the universe becomes a man and then he learns obedience. He learned to grow in wisdom and understanding. His wounds had scabs. He got body odor. He had bad breath. The Bible says that there was nothing special about his appearance at all. Nothing special. The Bible names, in other places, the Bible names human beauty in a number of places for both men and women. The Bible acknowledges kind of a a special, pleasant appearance of human beings in people like King David and in Abraham's wife. But Jesus Christ, the God-man, was utterly plain, plain. And these things weren't foisted on him. He put them on willingly and humbly. God the Son took the form of a servant and suffered the normal, painful realities of life in a fallen world. And he volunteered. He volunteered. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The pain that Jesus suffered wasn't an act. It wasn't something that he was shielded from because he was God. He felt every single bit of it. The exhaustion, the weariness, the blinding pain of having spikes nailed through your wrists. He wasn't protected from any of it. The crucifixion of Jesus is the apex of his physical anguish that he endured. He was tortured. The flesh on his body was ripped to shreds and just hanging off because of his flogging. If you do five minutes 
of research on what that means that'll make you sick. The writer of Hebrews reminds first century believers that they haven't suffered to the point of shedding blood and, and we haven't suffered to the point of shedding blood. Praise God, probably all of us. But that doesn't mean, and that doesn't mean that we should go and look for it, but we should examine our hearts in those moments. Are we thankful that we only suffer the occasional eye roll at work? Are we grateful that we only suffer the persecution of the occasional mocking or ridicule? We're no better than Jesus. If he suffers, we will suffer. He tells us that. We will be shamed for loving Jesus and, there, and we will be scorned for living a life in obedience to Christ and some of us will lose everything. Some of us will lose our families and lose our friends and lose our very lives for the sake of following Jesus. And we have promises like 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, which reminds us that this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. Jesus suffered pain. And the scriptures tell us that it was for the joy set before him he endured the cross. You and I will have a painful road in this life. We walk in a broken world, in a sinful world, just like the broken and sinful world that Jesus walked in. Jesus suffered physical pain, the likes of which many of us will never, ever have to go through. But he suffered grief and emotional pain that Christians truly will never have to suffer. He suffered the pain of God the Father's wrath being poured out onto him. And there are two things to mention right here. One is that we, if we're, if we're united with Christ, will never have to suffer that pain. He did it once for all of us. And the second is that Jesus suffered the wrath of God, the real wrath of God. Let me remind us that if you place your faith in Jesus, then it doesn't matter what pain you suffer in this life. You'll never have to suffer the pain of being separated from God. Jesus said to us in the Gospel of Matthew, don't fear those who can only kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's not talking about the devil. He's talking about God the Father. Have a sober reality when it comes to God himself. Don't be afraid of the pain that comes in this life from sickness or demonic attack or the pain of physical suffering, but have sober understanding of the one who can administer spiritual suffering forever in hell. Whatever pain you're enduring, one day it will be gone, eradicated one day you will be healed. One day you're going to have a new body. One day the pain of this life won't be a constant struggle. And Jesus knows. Jesus knows what it means to suffer physical pain. And because of the pain that he suffered, we'll never have to suffer the pain of the wrath of God. The second thing I want to state clearly is that Jesus suffered as a substitute. He suffered as a substitute for us in receiving the wrath of God for sin. For God to be just, 
The scriptures say, for God to be just and the justifier of the ungodly, the, the right punishment for sin had to happen somewhere. It had to happen to someone. For God to be just and the justifier of guilty people, guilty people just like you and me, someone had to suffer the consequences for our sin. 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his son as the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, that word means wrath bearer. Jesus bore the wrath of God. And I'm belaboring that point because today there are theories and ideas out there that try to embrace a version of the gospel without hell try to embrace a version of the gospel without God's wrath. And those are deceptions. God the Father poured out his wrath on God the Son. And if our lives are united to his, we'll never know that kind of pain. Ever. And as I, as I, as I move towards the close of this sermon, there's one more pain that Jesus experienced and endured that I want to mention because of the climate that we live in. This is the pain that he suffered in the garden before he walked the road to Golgotha. Before he was tortured, before he was crucified, he prayed. Jesus, Jesus had a human will and he had a divine will. Even Jesus had to submit his will to the will of his father. He suffered the pain and agony of staring down a path that he was about to walk. He suffered the anxiety and he suffered the sheer terror of knowing what he was about to walk through. He was about to walk into the hands of the living God. And Hebrews tells us that that place is a fearful place to be. And he walked straight into it. That's exactly what Jesus did. He became sin, and that sin re, uh, received the just penalty for sin, God's wrath. And he prayed in the garden before the crucifixion. He was riddled with anguish. He was all but, pa but paralyzed by the total horror of what was coming. And he begged his own father for a different path. We don't think about that or feel that or it becomes stale or loses its significance for us. Jesus looked at the path that God had for him and in a very real and in a very human way, he said, I don't want to go down that road. Please, God, is there another way? This is going to hurt too much. I can't take it. Please. Please don't make me do this, but not my will, not my will, but your will be done. And that's difficult for me to comprehend. But at some level, Jesus didn't want to drink the cup. And he had to say, but not my will, your will be done. Listen to this quote from theologian Donald McLeod. At a very basic level, Jesus does not want this cup. His whole nature shrinks away from it. 
And as he speaks to his father, he becomes acutely aware that there are two wills and two ways. There is my will, and then there is thy will. Nor did Jesus find it easy to be reconciled to the Father's will. It literally terrified him because here was the concentrated essence of the mysterium tremendum. It was eerie. It was overwhelming. Jesus' victory consisted not in merging his will with that of the Father or even in wanting specifically what the Father wanted. It came from choosing the Father's will rather than and even over against his own will. In a very real way, Jesus willed what he did not want. The suffering of Christ, I hope, is a comfort to us this morning. I hope that you have renewed courage to walk in obedience because even Jesus Christ had to suffer the pain associated with obedience. He knows that you're dust. He knows that you're weak. He knows your temptation. He knows that you're suffering and then some. So look to him. Look to him this morning and ask him to redeem your suffering for his glory and his own fame. Ask him for the grace to obey, the grace to endure. James reminds us that he gives grace away. So humble yourself. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself before Christ who, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider that something to be grasped, but he let it go. He let it go. Turn to that kind of savior this morning. As we move towards the last section of our service where we take communion, let me give you just a couple of instructions. The way we take communion here at Redeemer Fellowship is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. We'll have two stations right in front of me, a station in the balcony, and we'll also have a gluten-free single-serve station over here a little bit further to my left. We'll also have prayer ministers that are underneath that stained glass window to my left who would love to pray for anybody about anything, anytime. They're here every single week. If you are a Christian this morning, if you are looking to Christ and him alone to make you right before God, if you acknowledge your own sinfulness and you see your own guilt and you want to be cleansed and you see Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as the only thing that can make you right with God, him, him giving you his righteousness and him taking all of your sin. If that's you this morning, we invite you to celebrate that and to proclaim it to the world by taking communion. And if that's not you, man, I invite you. Well, first, we're so glad that you're here. Thanks for coming. And... I invite you to ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. I invite you to do work with God. Maybe pray for the first time. But don't take this meal with us. This meal is for only those who have placed their faith in Christ. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke that bread and said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. 
I'm going to pray for us, and then the servers and the musicians are going to come up. Would you all uh, bow your heads with me as I pray? Jesus, thank you for your body that was broken. Thank you that you're the bread of life. Thank you that you say unless we eat your bread or eat your, eat your flesh and drink your blood, we have no life in us. We want to be completely dependent on you for everything. We want to proclaim your goodness and grace and mercy, your willingness to become poor, your willingness to walk in the suffering and pain of this life, your willingness to be tempted like we are tempted. Would you give us the grace to obey you, to listen to you, to trust you, to trust you that you're not going to give us stones when we ask for bread, that you're not going to give us snakes when we ask for fish to eat. Jesus, you are good. You deserve all the glory in the universe. Would you help us lean on you and trust you and depend on you right now as we come forward to eat in faith? I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Come forward whenever you are ready.